Our scripture this morning is from Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 23. I think it'll be on the screen, and also you could look in your pew Bible on page 49. When Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, Potiphar, Pharaoh's chief officer and commander of the royal guard and an Egyptian, purchased him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man and served in his Egyptian master's household. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made everything he did successful. Potiphar thought highly of Joseph, and Joseph became his assistant. He appointed Joseph head of his household and put everything he had under Joseph's supervision. From the time he appointed Joseph head of his household and of everything he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's household because of Joseph. The Lord blessed everything he had, both in the household and in the field. So he handed over everything to Joseph and didn't pay attention to anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. Sometime later, his master's wife became attracted to Joseph and said, sleep with me. He refused and said to his master's wife, with me here, my master doesn't pay attention to anything in his household. He's put everything he has under my supervision. No one is greater than I am in this household, and he hasn't denied me anything except you since you are his wife. How could I do this terrible thing and sin against God? By every single day she tried to convince him, but he wouldn't agree to sleep with her or even to be with her. One day when Joseph arrived at the house to do his work, none of the household men were there. She grabbed his garment saying, lie down with me, but he left his garment in her hands and ran outside. When she realized that he had left his garment in her hands and run outside, she summoned the men of her household and said to them, Look, my husband brought us a Hebrew to ridicule us. He came to me to lie down with me, but I screamed. When he heard me raise my voice and scream, he left his garment and ran outside. She kept his garment with her until Joseph's master came home, and she told him the same thing. The Hebrew slave who you brought to us to ridicule me came to me. But when I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment with me and ran outside. When Joseph's master heard the thing that his wife told him, this is what your servant did to me, he was incensed. Joseph's master took him and threw him in jail, the place where the king's prisoners were held. While he was in jail, the Lord was with Joseph and remained loyal to him. He caused the jail's commander to think highly of Joseph. The jail's commander put all the prisoners in jail under Joseph's supervision, and he was the one who determined everything that happened there. The jail's commander paid no attention to anything under Joseph's supervision because the Lord was with him and made everything he did successful. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My, my, my voice went down an octave uh, due to a cold, so I pray that I get through this this morning. 
as we unpack this text and continue to talk about resiliency today. Uh, one of the things we've been going through is this idea of living the resilient life, uh, thriving life. And Harvard has a program called, uh, called Flourishing, uh, the Flourishing Life, or a Flourishing Life Program. They've done some research there, and they've found that there's a connection between the flourishing life and faith, that there's a relationship and a connection between living this life of fulfillment and also being people of faith. Now, I would, as I point out these statistics up on the screen, I would point out this. This is about people who are practicing the faith. Does that make sense? There's a difference between saying you're a Christian and believing that you're a Christian and then practicing Christianity. And so these are people, of, this is actually of all religions, but people who attend worship services on a regular basis are 18% more likely to report being happy, 87% more likely to have high levels of forgiveness. So this is across all faiths. So it's interesting that, that people who regularly attend worship services and regularly worship are more forgiving people in general. Uh, we see that. The other thing they found is that people who pray or meditate regularly, who spend time in their faith on a daily basis, 38% are more likely to volunteer in their community, and 47% more likely to have a sense of mission and purpose. And if you remember in the weeks past, we talked about this idea of having the meaningful life, and that when we're people of faith, we actually have meaning and purpose to our lives, that, that we're a part of something and we are become aware of something, that we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. And that leads to having a meaningful life, maybe not necessarily every circumstantial, ha circumstantial happiness, but having meaning and fulfillment and being able to flourish as human beings. And so this is a part of resiliency. This is a part of what it means to be resilient in life because life will throw us curveballs. And life will have, things will happen in our lives that we'll have to deal with and face. And so again, we're seeing that there's this connection, and we see that in the Joseph story again today, between faith and resiliency. So let's jump into the story today, and we're looking into this section where Joseph uh, rises on Potiphar. He's sold into slavery, and he's sold into slavery in Egypt to Potiphar. Now, Potiphar in, in this day was... Uh, would have hired, would have not hired, but I had bought David, Joseph. The cold's kicking in, sorry. So when Joseph is purchased, he probably would have been about 17 years of age when this happened. So keep this in mind. He's 17. We know he ends up in prison, and then he gets out of prison when he's 30. And for two years, he's forgotten in prison. So, for, so from 17 to 28, some, this whole chapter happens between the age of 17 and age 28, okay? So there's a 11 years that we're getting in one chapter in the Bible. So when you think about this, he would have gone to Potiphar's house, and the first place he would have been put into service would have been in the fields. He would not have been directly employed or working in the house of Potiphar. He would have started out in the fields like all the other slaves, and they would have been working in the fields. But as he showed himself to have a good work ethic and to be things were going well under him, he would have then got promoted. How many people here work fast food? Anybody ever here work in a fast food restaurant? Where did, where did you start out? What's that? Searing burger. Sear, searing burger. You start out in the burger line. Anybody else start somewhere else? Soda fountain. Soda fountain, right? And so you start like at a real basic level, right? Maybe cleaning floors and tables out on the floor, and then they promote you back to fries, and then they promote you to cash register, and then you become assistant manager, and then you become, if you're lucky, manager. 
That, that manager, yeah. So that's exactly what's happening to Joseph. He starts out in the fields, right? And then he gets promoted to the house. And he would have been a house servant in Potiphar's house. But then as he proved himself as a house servant, he would have been promoted to assistant manager, so to speak, of the house. And then ultimately Potiphar promotes him to manager of the house. And so he goes through this whole process. So we don't know how old Joseph is when he gets to that position in Potiphar's house. He could have been 25 years old, 24, 23. We don't know. But somewhere probably in his 20s, this happened. So I don't want you to get this idea that he was overnight success, because that's the way the, cha- the Bible kind of lays it out there, that he just, all of a sudden, he became a success. This happened over 11 years, it, uh, about 11 years that this happened. But he keeps getting promoted. He keeps proving himself successful. And it says, because the Lord was with him, that this was happening. Now, there's a key phrase in this text that the English does not translate from the Hebrew, and it's actually a Hebrew play on words. And so eight times this phrase is used in the Hebrew that we don't get in the English text. And it's this phrase, in his hands, in his hands. Potiphar kept placing more and more responsibility in his hands. And this phrase just gets repeated throughout the text, in his hands, in his hands, which means he kept getting more and more responsibility as he was successful in Potiphar's house. So it's interesting because you're going to find out, why why are you bringing this up, Matt? Why are you talking about this phrase in Hebrew? Because then it's interesting, there's a play on words here in the text. Take a look at verse 12, chapter 39, verse 12 says this. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak, what? In her hand and ran out of the house. So everything was in his hands until this moment when his cloak is left in her hands. So there's a play on words going on in the Hebrew text here around whose hands are things in, right? Whose hands, who's responsible, right? And so I think about this play on words as in his hands to now in her hands. Notice also, what is it that is being used once again to deceive? What is it? His cloak. Remember, his brothers used it to deceive his father. Remember, his father used it to deceive his father. And now again, someone else is using his cloak to, to create a false accusation against Joseph in this situation and in this scene. So you think about this, in, it goes from being in his hands, everything is in his hands until this very moment, it is now in her hands. And her, his whole life is in her hands at this moment. And this is what gets him ultimately into prison, this false accusation. Now, I want to talk about a little bit about this relationship between Potiphar's wife and Joseph. Because some people, if you just take this out of the Bible, if you take this story out of the Bible, it, you, would, you, would, you could make an argument that, see, the Bible portrays women as seductresses, right? That this is a portrayal of women that's a negative portrayal of women. And so there's, there's some that would make that claim about the scriptures. And I, and I want to balance that claim out a little bit because we actually just skipped over a story in the Joseph story about Judah and Tamar. We didn't go into that story. But in that story, Judah, the male, is acting inappropriately to his daughter-in-law, a female, and in the end, she is considered to be the righteous one in that sexual situation. 
So it was the male who was behaving badly in the previous chapter. We can also go back to look at Dinah and the prince of Shechem. And the prince of Shechem was the one who was acting inappropriately against Dinah. And that's why Dinah's brothers, if you remember last week, go and attack the, the people of Shechem because they treated their, his, their sister like a prostitute. So why I'm bringing this up because the Bible does a great job of telling it like it is. <laughs> In fact, I sometimes think the Bible should be R-rated because of scenes like this all throughout the Bible. And I think about this scene because it, what it does, though, is it portrays both men and women as behaving badly. It's not just one sex over the other. We have men who are acting inappropriately in sexual situations. We have women who are acting inappropriately in sexual situations. It's, it's not a, it's not a, there's not a difference because we're all, as it says in the New Testament, we're all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We all make mistakes. We all do things, and we let our sexual desire get the best of us at times. And so the Bible does a good, good job of portraying that. The other thing that I would point out, too, about the biblical witness is that it points out that there is an injustice here. The injustice between Joseph and Potiphar's wife, who was in the position of power in this dynamic, in this relational situation, who's in the power position? Potiphar's wife. In the situation with Dinah and the prince of Shechem, who's in the power position? The prince of Shechem. In the relationship between Judah and Tamar, who's in the power position? Judah. So all three episodes in, Ju Ju in Genesis point out that the person that's not in power is the one that is the victim. And that the person that is in power, whether male or female, see, is the person that is taking advantage of the situation. And that's the injustice that's happening in each of these sexual or si situations. There's an injustice here. But notice how Joseph is acting here in this, in this particular circumstance. His, and let's go on, and we'll take a look at verses 8 and 9. We're actually backing up a little bit. Look at verse 8 and 9. What is, what is Joseph's response to her advances? He says this, But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in the house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. And how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against who? God. You see, again, we know that God was with Joseph and that God is, that Joseph is responding out of his relationship with God. That his integrity is flowing from his relationship with God and how he knows God, not from his own sexual desires. And I think, you know, I look back when I was 24, 25, that, that's temptation for Joseph. I don't see this as, you know, I see this as a temptation situation for Joseph, and he acts appropriately. He acts with, and what he does is, what does he do? He places a boundary around that relationship with Potiphar's wife. He said, it's not appropriate for me to do this. As tempted as I might be to do this, this is not the right way to behave in this situation. I have some boundaries and I've put some boundaries, and what's helped me put those boundaries in place is my relationship to God. So my resiliency, Joseph's resiliency, and ability to have integrity in this situation is flowing from his relationship with God. 
His faith is informing his actions, which is the way it's supposed to work. And that's the biblical witness. You know, I was, uh, when I was working for Youth for Christ, I was, uh, we took a mission trip to Jamaica. We took about 30 teenagers with us to Jamaica, and we were doing uh, some construction and BBS work there in Jamaica, and we had to walk down this street in, in uh, outside of Kingston, and we had to walk down this street to the work site. And every day when we walked down there, we'd get down the site, some of the young women on our team would walk by, and there was a roadside bar, and in the afternoon, the men would come, and they would sit in the, on the roadside bar. So it's kind of in the street, if you can imagine that, and they're on bar stools. It's right on the road, and they're drinking the uh, red stripe beer. You know, it's the Jamaican beer, right? And so they're there, and our young women would walk by that down the road to the work site, and the first day, they started getting what I would call inappropriate comments made towards them by these men at the bar. And they were kind of trying to get these young women's attention. And, and, I, and I, the women were coming, young women were coming to me and say, hey, these guys are saying stuff. And I said, and my first response, well, let's just, just try and ignore it. You know, let's, let's you know, we're, 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 we're uh, trying to be good. You know, I kind of went that whole tactic, like, you know, we're, we're guests in their culture. Let's not, you know, make things. So, but... This kept happening. The next day it happened again, and the, and the young women were telling me some of the things the men were saying to them. I'm like, oh, that's not, that's not right. So I decided to go have a chat with these guys. <laughs> so one afternoon, the next afternoon, I went down there, and these the same guys are sitting there on the bar stools, and I walk over, and they happily greet me, and they're like, oh, let us buy you a drink, you know, and all this stuff. I can't do my Jamaican accent, sorry. But they... So they come over, and they're very hospitable towards me, and they welcome me, and they want to buy me a drink. And so I said, no, I'm fine, and I just want to talk to you guys. And they're like, well, you know, what do you, what do you want to talk about? I said, I want to talk to you about what you're saying to these young women. Do you realize these women are 16 years old? And they're like, oh, we didn't know they were that young. I'm like, they're 16. They're here with our youth group. And then they said, well, you know, oh, we're sorry, we're sorry. They were very apologetic, and they kind of looked surprised that I was actually addressing it. And I said, well, you know, you can't say these things. And this is not appropriate for them. And it's scaring them. You're actually scaring them. And they say, oh, we're so apologetic. We're so sorry. We're, you know, we won't do it again. We won't say anything anymore. And I was like, okay, good. You know, we're, everybody's on the same page. So then I asked a question. I said, so what do you, where did you learn this? Here's, the, here's what they said, folks. We've been, a wa- we've been watching American sitcoms on TV. And we noticed that all the American women seem to be eager for sex. They, they were assuming, based on what they saw on TV in 1988, that it was appropriate to act this way because they had assumed that American women didn't have boundaries. See how that works? And I would suggest to you that if there are boundary issues around sex in our culture, it's not the Bible that's the problem. It's actually our culture. Our, cul- our anything goes culture, our culture that keeps saying, that keeps taking what? The boundary and keeps moving the boundary again and again and again, and the boundaries keep getting moving. There's no boundaries anymore. And it's all about lust rather than intimacy. And what do you need to have intimacy in a relationship? Boundaries. 
When you take away the boundaries, you prevent intimacy from happening, which was God's original intent and desire for us was to be, have intimacy. But without boundaries placed upon our desires, we don't experience that intimacy. And so we're in a culture which says, if it feels good, do it. If it feels right, do it, right? And so that leads to these boundaries keep getting moved and moved and moved. So that was happening in 1988. And what we've seen over time is we've become a more highly sexualized culture that has traded, I think, lust or intimacy for lust. We've traded intimacy for lust. We traded what's God's original intent for sexual relationship for lust. And we've basically dumbed down sex. We've dumbed it down just like we've been talking, to lust and physical attraction. But if you read the Bible, and I, and I will tell you, and there's a whole sermon series just on Matt's experience growing up in America as a, as a male in America going to University of Maryland. I, I have stories. But what I would say to you is it wasn't until I became a Christian and became a disciple and follower of Jesus that somebody taught me something different about how I was to behave sexually. I thought it was anything goes until I became a Christian. And then I learned that there are God-given things that God gives us that help us to experience and move towards intimacy in our relationships, monogamy being one of them. And so the key biblical teaching throughout the scriptures is on human sexuality is this. You and I, whatever desires we have, are to be masters of our desires, not be mastered by our desires. That's the key biblical teaching. If I read the whole thing and I look at all things, that every situation, even with what Joseph is doing, what is Joseph doing? He's saying, because of my relationship with God, I need to master this. I need to let my relationship with God set the boundary. I need to let my relationship with God inform my behavior and set those boundaries and act appropriately in this situation. And I think that's the biblical witness, that we're to not be mastered by our sexuality, but be masters of it. And if you read the New Testament, that's certainly what Paul says, because the key is that it's that mastery and those placing of boundaries that lead us to intimacy. Anyway, enough about sex. PG-13 part is over. But what about you? Have you ever been falsely accused of something? Or did somebody one time assume the worst about you or assume something terrible about you or assume something they didn't like about you? How did you respond to that? How did you respond when you were falsely accused? How did you respond when things were, untruths were told about you? Has anybody ever experienced that? I have. I'm a pastor. I was, uh, my first day on a job at one church, I, sh- I showed up in the office, my first day in the office, and uh, a, a woman came in to meet me in the office, wanted to meet the new pastor, first day on the job, you know, and she wanted me, and she's very nice, and we were talking, and she finally, after some discussion, she said, you know, I heard you're doing away with singing hymns in our church at the eight o'clock, we had an eight o'clock service, it was, and they sang hymns at the eight o'clock service. She said, I heard you're doing away with hymns at the eight o'clock service, first day on the job. I looked at her and I said, I am? I, I, I said, what, when did I say that? When I, I, I hadn't even planned worship for Sunday yet. It was my first day. I didn't even know they, what they were singing at the worship service quite yet. You know, I wasn't sure what was going on. I was still learning everything. But it was interesting how already my name was mud with the people at the eight o'clock service before I even got into the church. 
So they had heard something, they had made an assumption, they had filled in the gap with something negative, right, about me, and so I had to, you know, <laughs> go on Sunday and we sang hymns, right? But I think about that, how, have you ever had a situation like that where people just assume the worst in you or assume something bad about you or accuse you of doing something that you didn't do? And how do you respond to that? What do you do? It's interesting because I think of since we don't have anybody in the Super Bowl, I'm still thinking about football. And by the way, anybody going to boycott the, the, the Super Bowl next week? All right. <laughs> thinking about it, thinking about it. So, but I think about football, <clears throat> and there is a running back, one of the greatest all-time running backs in football is Walter Payton for the Chicago Bears. He, he get this, he, he carried the ball 3,838 times and carried it for a, a career total of 16,726 career yards. That's a lot of running. If you add all that up, he ran at full speed nine and a half miles at top speed. But get this, every 4.4 yards, somebody knocked him down. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if you went out to run the Seattle Marathon or the Rock and Roll Marathon, and every 4.4 yards you went, somebody pushed you over? <laughs> Would you do it? No. And, but notice how long it took him to do that, right? But my point is this. What did, what did Pey, uh, Peyton Manning, what did, I'm really off today, sorry. What did Walter Payton, Walter Payton there you go. That guy on the screen. What did Walter Payton do every time he got knocked down then? He got back up, right? He just got back up, got back to it, lined up again, kept going, did it again, did it again, did it again. And over time, he kept doing it. He was resilient. That's resiliency. It's interesting. Proverbs 24, chapter 24, verse 16 says this. For though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again, but the wicked stumble when calamity strikes. That's what Joseph's doing, isn't he? He keeps rising again. He keeps coming out. He comes out of the cistern and he gets sold into slavery. He comes out of slavery in the fields and he keeps getting promoted. And he rises up in this Potiphar's household and he's got knocked down again and he gets sent to prison. But notice what happens in prison when he gets there and he's knocked down in prison. What happens? He rises up again in prison. Every time Joseph gets knocked down, he gets back up because God is with him. Resiliency. See, resilient people see obstacles as challenges, not hindrances. Challenges, not hindrances. So what is your obstacle today? <laughs> what, what's, 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 what are you facing today? Is there a way that you can begin to look at that obstacle not as a hindrance, but look at it as a challenge that you've got to get back up from, that you've got to be resilient towards? It's interesting also, notice something else happened here in the text. Joseph is not killed for, his, for what happens. Egyptian law stated that he should have been killed because of his actions towards his master's wife. A slave acting in this way, attempted rape towards his master's wife, was the death penalty in Egyptian culture. Why is he not killed? 
I don't know the answer to that. We don't know that from the text. For some reason, Potiphar relented from taking out capital punishment and gave him a lesser sentence of having him imprisoned. And so once again, this would have been the end of the story. But for some reason, for some unknown reason, which I think is God at work, this has changed. Joseph is spared, and salvation for Joseph happens again. It's interesting because ultimately, when we go through these circumstances in life, what we see is that, notice that things were placed in Joseph's hand, and then things got out of of hand. But what we see again and again and again is that everything is in God's hands. No matter whether it's in Joseph's hands, or in Potiphar's wife's hands, or human hands, that ultimately everything is in God's hands, that God's purposes prevail. That's the Joseph story. Would you like to hear a Jewish, Jewish folk tale? You like the last one I told you. This one is about two men who went on a journey together. One was a man of faith and the other was a skeptic. And they took with them a donkey and a torch to light their way at night. And the donkey's friend, the donkey's friend was a rooster who sat on the donkey's head as they traveled. And so the men put their sacks upon the donkey as they traveled. And as they were traveling that, that evening, they came to a village and they looked for a place to stay in the village, but there was no room anywhere in the village for them to stay. And all along the journey, the man of faith had been saying this phrase, God is good. Have you ever heard that? God is good. And the skeptic said, we'll see if God is good. So they get to the village that night. There's no room in the village, so they have to travel another mile past the village, and they are camping in the woods. And the skeptic says to the man of faith, so is God still good? Here we are camping out in the woods, vulnerable, unsafe. So they tether the donkey to one of the trees, and then they go over to another tree, and they begin to set up camp with the donkey about 30 yards away. And just then, a lion comes and attacks the donkey, sends the men scurrying up the tree with the torch that they were just about to light. And they go up into the tree, they're holding the the torch, and they're watching as a lion drags the donkey off into the woods to have a meal. And the skeptic looked at the man of faith and said, you got to be kidding me. You telling me God's good? Look at that. We've lost our donkey. The man of faith looked at him and said, better the donkey than us. Then a little while later, as they were hanging in the tree, waiting for things to get safe, all of a sudden the rooster crowed in the dark. And then when the rooster crowed, they held up the torch and they could see a wild cat dragging the rooster off into the woods. And the man of faith said, I still believe that God is good. (laughs) And then a strong wind came that night in the darkness and blew their torch out. And the skeptic looked at the man of faith and said, it seems to me that God's goodness is working overtime this evening. (laughs) And the man of faith was silent. And they sat in the tree the rest of the night in silence. And then when the sun came up, they climbed down the tree and they grabbed their things and they walked back to the village. And when they got to the village, they noticed that it had been burnt and attacked by outlaws 
Outlaws had come and attacked the village, took all the the goods of the villagers, burned the buildings. And then the man of faith said, ah, now I understand. Had Had we stayed in the village, we too would have been attacked and lost everything. But we ended up in the woods. And the reason that the donkey and the rooster and the torch went out was so the bandits wouldn't find us as they rode along the road on the way out of town. They would have attacked us too there. So I would still tell you that God is good. Everything's in God's hands, ultimately. Ultimately, everything is in God's hands. So my question for you this morning is, what do you need to put in God's hands? What is it that you're holding on to? Fear, worry, false accusations, rumors, circumstances, What is it today that you need to put back into God's hands because you keep carrying it, even though you have no control over it? That you keep, it keeps weighing you down, but it's out of your hands ultimately. What is it today that you need to place in God's hands? Let's pray together.